Well, uh, we have been in a series for a number of weeks now asking this question, what is the church for? And uh, we're getting into the home stretch, but, but I hope it's been an inspiring and an encouraging number of weeks. We've been painting this picture of the church, not as a building or an organization or denomination, but as a community, a community of people expressed locally in time and space, but part of this global movement of God, but also this eternal movement of God, centered on Jesus in his saving work, committed to his glory, his fame, and his name, loving one another deeply, and then reflecting everything that we experience of his truth and his goodness and his beauty and his life out into the world around us. And I hope it's been inspiring. I hope it's encouraged you. Uh, A bunch of years ago when I was, uh, as a full-time businessman, just thinking about maybe going back to seminary and becoming a full-time paid pastor, this was the kind of vision that caught hold of me. I thought, man, I would love to give my life to seeing these things happen, these communities birth in the world. And today what I want to look at with you is two particular parts of the story of the community, two particular ways we interact as community. And specifically what I want to talk to you about is the way that we enter into the community and the way that we are continually fed and renewed and sent out from the community. And if that sounds a bit too weird in Christianese and you have no idea what I'm talking about, what I really want to talk to you about this morning is I want to talk to you about baptism and I want to talk to you about communion. These two amazing actions within the life of a church. And we're going to ask these questions. What is it? Why and how do we do it? And who is it for? And there's a lot to get through. So we're going to go fast. I hope that you are kind of moderately awake, even though you've lost an hour's sleep. Um, and I will try my best to keep, keep us moving uh, through the next few minutes. So baptism. What is baptism? Well, I don't know what comes to mind. Depending on your church tradition or not church tradition or religion you grew up from, here's a few images on the screen that might be familiar. The bottom one you might have even seen in a movie theater in the last few weeks. What is baptism? Well, at its very most basic level, baptism is the moment of official entry into the covenant people of God. It is the place where we become members of God's story on the earth. Now, we need to say straight up that baptism is not something magical in itself. It's not a checkbox exercise or which achieves something for you that is totally independent of anything else in your life. But it is part of a story of salvation that Jesus wants for every human being. Jesus tells us exactly how it is we enter into God's kingdom in John 10 when he says this, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and they will go out and they will find pasture. That picture that Jesus gives is of a sheep pen, which would have been more like a low building where the sheep would sleep at night, but there was no gate. There's no door on it. Instead, the shepherd would sleep across the front to guard against wild animals and to allow the sheep and only the sheep to enter in. John, Jesus then goes on a few chapters later when he says this. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other way to enter into the kingdom people of God than through Jesus. 
And specifically, Paul then tells us how that works when he says in Galatians 2, know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Notice that word there. Faith is the thing that brings salvation. Ephesians 2.8, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God. But there's no amount of goodness, there's no amount of religiosity, there's not being in the right nation or the right country or the right religious background that will make you a follower of Jesus. That it it is from a personal decision to respond to Jesus, to respond to his goodness, to recognize that he is the only way to life, to leave behind that old life, to repent, to turn and to allow him to be in charge, to be the king of our destinies. And, And that is at its primary level, it's a personal, private thing you do. Nobody can do it for you. You have to do it yourself. Whether you came to it, maybe if you call yourself a Christian today, you came to it through some dramatic encounter in a stadium or a conference or a church gathering. Or whether for many of us, we just grew into it gradually as we learned and discovered and explored the Christian faith. In a sense, like coming a Christian is for Jesus to step back from the doorway and to say, come on in. But then what's baptism then in relation to that? Well, if, if, community, sorry, if, if uh, coming a Christian is walking in, then baptism is the moment when we step into the life of the community. When the doorway is stepped back, we walk into the room full of all these wonderful other sheep, otherwise known as Christians, and, we, and they say to us, welcome like welcome you are here we are so happy that you have come let's celebrate this thing together and and baptism in that sense it's it's a sign it's a symbol of something that is happening In, in baptism we have these three motions we we look back We look back to Jesus who died for us. Jesus who, in the waters of baptism, we recognize someone goes under the water, died. Jesus who died and was buried for three days. And then in the rising out of the water, we recognize that Jesus rose again, conquering death. In baptism, we also look forward. We look forward to the time when Jesus will come again to complete that process of healing and salvation. But actually, baptism is even more than that. Because it doesn't just remember that. It doesn't just enact that. It actually embodies that in the here and the now. It claims those promises right in the moment. That when you are baptized, what you are doing is you are claiming everything that was true of Jesus. Everything of his saving work, everything that is true of his eternal plans for you right in the moment. That actually as you are baptized and you go under the water, you are baptized and you die to your old life. Hopefully not literally, otherwise we do it wrong. But hopefully you you die to your old life that you leave behind in the waters of baptism or your old stuff, your things that you've done the things that were done to you, the things that are broken, and you rise into this new beginning, this new story. In the early church, the way that they did this was on early on Easter Sunday when it was still dark, people would go down as they'd been preparing for baptism. 
And they would wait in the dark. And then at sunrise, they would be baptized and they would come up from under the foundations of the kind of church out into the daylight in white robes to signal this is a new story. It is a new beginning. The old is taken away. No longer are we defined by the old story. Now we're defined by God and his story. And it's in baptism that so often the Holy Spirit comes in power. We describe uh, baptism as a sacrament, which might be a word you know or like or don't like. I don't know. But what we basically mean is it's a symbol of something amazing. But it's also even more than just a symbol because in baptism, the God does something amazing. If you read through Acts chapter 2, where Peter speaks to the crowds in Jerusalem after Pentecost, he says this, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins. And, notice this, you will receive the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit can come in different places and different moments, but there is something about baptism where the Holy Spirit marks a person and says, this is a new beginning. And one of the things I think the Holy Spirit does so powerfully in baptism is moves us from that place of individual faith individual story, individual personal private belief in Jesus out into the church and out into the world where we publicly say, this is who I am. This is my story. This is who I am going to be from this moment on. And that's great because, you know, when Jesus, he's talking in Matthew 28, he he says those famous words. He says, therefore, go and make And I think in our Western church, we almost translated as go and make people who have a personal private belief in Jesus Christ. He doesn't say that. He says disciples. And disciples were those who literally left behind their old life and took up their cross and followed Jesus. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of the whole world, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's incredible. It's an incredible movement when people are baptized. And in a sense, it's a little bit like a wedding. It's symbolically beautiful and actionary like a wedding. Um, I met my my beautiful wife, Laura, in December of 2005 um, in literally the most romantic place known to mankind, my parents' living room. Um, (laughs) I came home for Christmas to find this beautiful young lady who had been invited for a, par- for a party. I'm told it wasn't an arranged marriage, but uh, it, after just a few weeks, I'll have to be honest and say I was pretty sure. Like I was like, there's something, there is something about this beautiful lady. I, I think I could see myself being with her. Um, now, wisely, she took a very lot longer uh, to decide the same was true of, true of me. But in October of the following year, I did. I got up really early in the morning. I planned it all out carefully. I conned her to come with me down to this big hill overlooking the sea on the south coast of England with cliffs and, and there. And I dragged her to the edge of the cliff. And there, can you see it there? If you can't, I actually made the church interns make it out of seaweed. That's what I did. Um, and I think probably because I'd put so much effort in, she said yes. Um, now, at that moment, we weren't married, but we had made a personal decision privately between ourselves that this is what we were going to do with the rest of our lives. We'd already made the decision. 
But we weren't actually married until the following June. And if you're thinking about getting engaged and married, that's probably about as long as you need uh, between getting engaged and married. If you're not living together and you're celibate and you're waiting, you know, absolutely amazing. That's long enough, said enough, right? But we arrived on June the 23rd, 2007 in our church with all our friends, with all our family, with all the people we knew. We gathered them together and using these symbols, the symbols of a ring, the symbols of a white wedding dress, in the action of her dad giving her away. We made these promises before our church, before our family, before God. We said, I do. I will. I will promise this to be true for us for the rest of our lives. Amen. And that's exactly what we do in some ways in in baptism. You can't baptize yourself. You know that. You don't say, I'm going to be a follower of Jesus. And so I'll stop off at the gym on the way home, have a little swim in the jacuzzi, and we're good. That's not how baptism works. Baptism is something that the church does to you and for you. You receive a baptism from the church as a symbol of this is now who you are. And you stand in front of the church and say, this is who I want to be. It's amazing. It's an amazing thing, baptism. As you do that, you transfer from an old identity, an old family, into a new one. Paul says in Galatians 3, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Like when you are baptized, you step in to a new family. Just like in a wedding, you step out of one family into a new one. The same is true in baptism, which is why in the next verse, Paul says this. Now there is neither Jew nor Gentile, nor slave nor free. There's not male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Why? Because you're baptized into the family of God. And you know, it's amazing. It's an amazing thing. I got baptized in a swimming pool in Hong Kong when I was about 15 years old. And all my friends came and my family came and my church came. And I just remember going under the water and rising and this amazing sense of God's presence just filling my life. I get the privilege of doing lots of baptisms nowadays and I cry at almost every single one of them because I love watching people make that transition into new um, life. So why? Why get baptised? Well, hopefully for all the reasons I've just said, but also for the reason that it's a biblical invitation and a command to There is no differentiation in the Bible between personally choosing to follow Jesus and publicly choosing to follow Jesus. In personally making a commitment of faith and in publicly declaring it in baptism. You see it on the streets in those early church days when Paul writes to the church. His assumption is every single Christian that he's writing to is baptized. Jesus Jesus himself gets baptized as a symbol and a sign of what needs to happen. There is something about baptism that is profound and necessary as we choose to follow him. So, so who is it for? He, who should get baptized? Well, of course, the easiest starting place with that is everybody. 
everybody for whom they want to make this their story. Maybe, maybe you're here today and you're like, yeah, I've, I chose to follow Jesus. I want to be a Christian. I count myself as a Christian, but I've never publicly declared it in that way. Um, and if that's you, uh, we would love to baptize you. Uh, on Easter Sunday, right where I'm standing, we're going to get the hot tub out. We're going to make it as warm as we can. We've already got seven people signed up, but we would love to baptize as many people as possible in front of all our friends and our family to declare this to be true. Um, and today at lunch, we've got a, a baptism interest lunch, and you can just stay around after church, and Laura and I and Matt, we're going to host a lunch upstairs, and you can just come and find out more. So that's group one. Please come. The second group, though, and this uh, might seem a little bit more unusual, and depending on your church background, you might want to talk more to me about this, but I think is little children. Little children. Now, you don't have to agree with me, but, but if baptism actually comes out of an Old Testament practice, something in the Old Testament called circumcision, and when little children were six or seven days old, they would go to the priest, to the church equivalent, and they would be circumcised. And at that moment, as their friends and their family and the church make that promise on their behalf, those children became, become part of the covenant people of God. If you look at how Jesus then speaks of children in the New Testament, it's exactly the same. He says, come, bring the children to me. He actually says, have faith like a child. And we realize that actually children too can have an incredible capacity for faith. Some people say, like, when did your children like, learn to follow Jesus? I'm like, my children were born with faith. I mean, they knew how to pray before they had words, as far as I can tell. It's not that one day they will get faith. It's actually that one day, and we pray in the name of Jesus, it will never happen. One day they might lose faith, right? Because of what the world says and does to them. And because of that, we actually love at Vintage to baptize little babies because we get to say to them, no, even though they cannot make a public declaration and choose all these things for themselves, they are being born into the covenant people. They're being born into the story. And their parents are committing to bring them up in that way. Now, of course, that doesn't negate the moment as adults when they are going to need to say, this is who I am. But we want to count them in and not count them out until that moment. We don't think they're out of the covenant people of God until they make that personal decision as an adult. We actually think God already counts them in to the story. Um, and so um, we love to do that. We, don't, uh, we also do dedications and we're very chill at Vintage, but that's part of it. And then thirdly, the third group of people, um, is we actually love to offer adults the chance uh, to reaffirm their baptism vows. And what we mean by that is that like maybe for some of us, you know, we were baptized, maybe we were baptized in churches when we were tiny, and if we're honest, it wasn't really our story. It wasn't maybe even really our family's story. It was just something that, that happened as a rite of passage. And if that's uh, the case, then we love to say to people who are adults, come, come. We don't quite call it baptism in the same way. We don't believe you can be baptized twice. It's a significant individual thing. But what we do love to do is say, hey, come and jump in the water anyway. It's warm. Come and jump in the water and be baptized and go down and come up as a symbol of your new life, as a sign of what you want to be true of your adult life. 
Um, and if that's true, if that's you, and you were maybe baptized as an infant, and you're just like, I, I want to make an adult decision, then again, come and join us for lunch, and we'd love to explore with you and talk um, a little bit more about what we believe of, to be true of baptism. So that's baptism. Uh, but if that's baptism, what is communion? How do the two things fit together in any way? Here's some pictures that might be reminders to you or experiences you've had. Well, if baptism is the birthing into the family of God. It's the moment when we go, welcome, you're here. We're so glad you're here. Communion is the regular family meal. It is the gathering together around a table to celebrate and give thanks. And there's something about eating together that's amazing, isn't there? I mean, you don't have to be a Christian or a person of faith to believe that, right? But where I live up near Sierra Madre, in the pandemic, they took out all the parking on the main street and they put outdoor tables. And if you go up there at like 6 p.m. or 7 p.m. on a summer's evening, you smell these amazing restaurants and food and you see all these families just eating out with a glass of wine and a lovely meal. Like there's just something incredible about that place of joining together. It's interesting that food is also the place that seems to be almost at our greatest problems too with the loneliness and addictions and body image stuff and the fact that apparently American Christians now spend more on dieting than they do on world mission. I mean, it's just like there's so much around food. Well, communion arrives into this space as a better story, as a bigger story. Why? Because it's a meal like no other, because it's not just about food and wine and people. It's about Jesus. And communion, in a, in, in a way, is basically like a version 2.0 of something that also happened in the Old Testament of the Bible. Now, every year, the Israelites would get together and they would celebrate the Passover. And the Passover was this moment where they remembered how God brought them out of slavery and captivity in Israel and brought them eventually into the Promised Land. And the people would gather their families and their friends and they would feast and they would party and they would enjoy the goodness of God. And it's kind of in that space that Jesus arrives a few days before dying on the cross in Luke 22. And he comes to them at the Passover dinner and he says these words, Luke 22, 14 to 20. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Communion, like Passover, is a narrative story. It is God's story. It's the world's story. It's Israel's story. It's Jesus' story. 
And in it, we're invited to make it our story as well. And communion, like baptism, has those three motions. We never said them, but looking back. But in communion, like baptism, we look back to what Jesus did for us. We look at the cross and we say, it is absolutely astonishing that God himself would give his life to die for us. It is astonishing that he would conquer death and rise again for us. We look back. Like baptism, though, we look forward. In communion, we say it is amazing that God will come again one day to finish what he has begun. 1 Corinthians 11. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. But also, like baptism, it's not just a memory. It's not just, well, that was really nice. In the moment, we say, this is true for me. This is true for us. We feed on him with faith and thanksgiving that he did that and is doing it for us. As one theologian says, in the bread and the wine of Eucharist, as in the sacrament of baptism, the past and the future come to meet us in the present. God filling all of creation like the grapes the children of Israel ate in the wilderness. And it anticipates our being strengthened through the Eucharist by the presence and life of Jesus. Not just to defeat evil in our lives, but also that we can shine God's light into the world. It's amazing. It's why we, like baptism, say communion is a sacrament. Again, that might not be a word you're used to, but what we mean is it's a symbol. It's a sign of something, but it's also a place where God chooses to meet us. Like there's something of the communion table where we come and the Holy Spirit moves. We pray it in our prayers and we experience it weekly. I said last week of the little thousand-year-old church that I used to lead where these people would come solemnly every week, but they would kneel and they would encounter the power of the Lord as they took the bread and the wine. It's not that it's magic, but it's just that God chooses to make himself known in the ordinary symbols of bread, in the ordinary symbols of wine, an extraordinary moment of God is possible. It's amazing. And many of us actually, sadly, we grow up almost without that. We think communion is like just a bit of an afterthought. When actually for the early church, this was such a big deal for them. They were so centered around this idea that the world around them, the Greeks and the Romans, thought they were cannibals. They thought they were cannibals because they were constantly going on about how they just kept eating their God. And they misunderstood completely what they were talking about. But this was a huge deal for the early church. So why? Why and how do we celebrate communion? Well, N.T. Wright says it like this. We celebrate the Eucharist because we celebrate Jesus. Jesus who's in our midst as he promised he would be. And if you look in the Bible and in the early church, you actually see six different names for communion. And uh, I'm a bit of a, a nerd on this sort of stuff, so bear with me. Um, but what's beautiful about them is that each one of them gives us a glimpse about what Jesus meant in it. You can see them there. No grand reveal. They're on the screen. The first is this. 
It's the word communion itself. It's the Greek word um, koinonia. Um, you might know that word from other things. It translates into lots of things in the Bible. Um, it translates into the word fellowship or sharing, contribution, even family. And what it really gives us an idea about is the sharing of life together. The idea of community and fellowship, that relationship between us together, but also the relationship we are invited into through Christ. It is about communing deeply together. We see it in our very favorite, my very favorite little passage at the end of Acts 2. When it says of the early church, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to, notice it there, koinonia, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. It's amazing. That's verse number, that's number one. Number two is the term breaking bread. Um, you see it in that exact same passage, note it there, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. This is the most common term that Luke uses, and he uses it through the book of Acts as well. It speaks about bread being literally broken in two. Now, um, I discovered when I came to Southern California that there is nothing more evil in the world than bread. Like, I, I discovered that it, it, it is just like it's treated with scorn and shame. Um, unless, apparently, it has got an in and out burger sandwiched in between it, in which case it's from heaven. Or it has a Chick-fil-A fillet, also heavenly. Everything else, hell, as far as I can work out. And when we do buy bread, right, we go to Ralph's or Trader Joe's, and we buy like, pre-sliced bread that's already ready to go, and, or the buns or your bagels, and you, you, know, you take it home, and you put it in your toaster oven thing, and then you put butter and marmite, or whatever you lot do. I don't know what you do, but that's what I do. And, and you eat it. Now, in the early church, that's not what they did. There were no serrated knives and pre-cut loaves of bread. So when somebody baked a loaf, just like Micah's baked for us this morning for communion, you literally had to tear it. You tore it into pieces. And in the breaking of bread, what the early church remembered is this is what Jesus did for us. This is what he did. His body was literally broken. His blood was literally poured out. And in the idea, we remember that on the simplest level, all life comes through death. You know, when we eat, whether it was an animal or, or a plant, something died to give us life. But in a Christian sense, what we remember is that Jesus died to give us life. That there is no spiritual life on offer anywhere in the world except through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Number two. Number three, Eucharist. Um, now, depending on your church tradition, you might know this one or you might not, but it's the Greek word eucharisto, um, and it, it means literally a thanksgiving meal. In all four of the Gospels, Jesus says, Jesus gave thanks and gave it to them. And the idea is that communion is a free gift for you. It's a gift. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. You can't earn your way up to the table. It is given to you. See, unlike religion, which is always about like being good enough, having enough, getting enough, and then maybe God's okay with you. In communion, we realize it is a free, undeserved gift of grace. That's why you don't 
take communion, you receive it. It's why it's given to you because you didn't earn it. And it's beautiful. Beautiful. That's number three. Number four. Uh, the agape feast or the love feast. I feel like in California, love feast could be translated wrongly. Uh, I feel like we might think something a little bit unnecessary and something slightly immoral. But what it was all about was the idea of celebration. This is the main term used by the early church for it. It, Paul has to write to the early church when he talks about their communion practices at one point. Because he says, you guys, you need to calm down a little bit. Because what was happening is that they were having such a big party around the communion table that people were getting smashed. They were drunk. People were lying on the floor. People were overeating to the point of being ill. Like It was totally out of control. And Paul's like, this is amazing that you understand something about the goodness of God, but this is just a little bit beyond what you're thinking. (laughs) Now, in our our modern church, we've done such a good job of going to the other end of the spectrum. We're like, you're not going to get drunk at this. We're going to give you this much wine, and we're going to give you such a little amount of bread that you may not even notice it. Right? We do the opposite. But in the early church, they saw communion as a party. It was like the Sonos like, party mode that went off in the life of the church. It's like a birthday party or a Christmas day party or a Thanksgiving. It's like, God is good. Let's celebrate, guys. Now, <laughs> I know that we say, well, hold on. Aren't you supposed to like, repent of your sins at communion? Aren't you supposed to sort of be a bit like, you know, solemn? Well, if you look at what Paul actually says, he says, yeah, if you've got something wrong with your brother and sister, if you've got a problem, if you've got a a sin, go and deal with it first. Go and deal with it. And then come. Come forgiven. Come free. Come undeserved and celebrate the goodness of God. I'm right with God. Let's party. Let's party. Number four. Just two more to go. Well done. You're doing well. Okay, the fifth one, the Lord's Supper. Or if you're not from across the pond, Jesus' dinner. Probably a better translation, I think, anyway. But the idea was of a covenant meal. A covenant meal. Now, in the Old Testament of the Bible, people didn't have contract law. They didn't have this ability to write down a whole contract and get a lawyer or a judge and decide this is what we're going to do. They would make covenants. And when you made a covenant, what would happen is two groups of people or two individuals would come together and they would kill an animal as a sacrifice and they would both eat of the same animal as a symbol, as a sign of on the penalty of death, this is what we're going to do. This is who we are together. And there's something about the early church understanding of communion that it is like that same idea of recommitment of covenant to God and God's covenant to us. John Mark Hicks, a theologian, he says this, when we eat and we drink, we renew our covenant with God. We pledge ourselves to keep the covenant. It's a moment of rededication and recommitment. See, when we approach the communion table a little bit like when we approach the waters of baptism, what we're saying is, again for me, this is my story. Again for me, I commit myself back to the Lord. This is who I am going to be as I leave behind my sins and start again, again. And I think that's why the church does say this is a weighty moment. 
This is a holy moment. This is a serious moment. It's not like a flippant add-on to church life. This is the moment we commit our lives back to God. And then finally, um, the word mass. It's not a word that actually appears in scripture, but it comes in the early church, in particular as the church goes through Rome into the Latin word. And the words um, translated are ita missa est, which Latin for go, you are sent out. As you really love it, we use the similar words at the end of our service when we say go in peace to love and serve the Lord. And basically the idea was in the early church that as you receive communion, you were receiving the good news of the body and blood of Jesus. It was nourishing and feeding you. It was poured out for you. And so now, as you receive, we go. We go. We pour our lives out for the world. As Jesus' body was broken for us, we break our bodies not literally, but um, whatever that word is, metaphorically, whatever that word is, we do that into the world with the love of Christ. As N.T. Wright finally says, the Eucharist is not just about me and my salvation. It's about necessity, a part of what enables us to be God's new creation. People, we taste the new creation on our tongues, in our lips, in our mouths, in our bodies, so that we can go out and do the kind of work in the world that helps us bring in the kingdom, God's new creation. See, as we celebrate together, we are joining with Christians all around the world. We're joining with Christians throughout time and space, and we're saying this is who we are. So who is communion for? Who is communion for, finally? Well, um, obviously, it's for everyone. It is a free, unmerited gift to us. Jesus says, do it. Come, remember me. But we might say, like more specifically, um, come all for whom this is your story. For this is the reality you want to be true of you. This is what you believe to be true. Then would you come? Would you come? In some churches, they say, well, obviously that means baptized people, right? That's what you do in baptism. Well, vintage, we're a little bit more chill. We let you decide that moment for yourself. But... And I do want to say this, I've never said this before, but it does mean that when we take communion, you don't have to come if you don't want to. I mean, you're welcome to. But if you're like, well, but Ben, I'm, I'm sort of figuring this out. Like, I'm not sure I'm a Christian yet. I'm just on a spiritual journey. It's okay not to come. It's okay. It's okay to sit in your seats if you're more comfortable It's also okay to come to the front with everyone else and instead of having your hands out to receive, just to have your hands down and ask for a blessing. And if you ask for a blessing, we would love to pray a quick prayer over you as you come because we realize it is serious. This is a big deal that we we do it. The other group of people who we love to welcome um, is we welcome children. We welcome children. Jesus says, let the children come to me. And if you look in the early church, it's very clear that children were very much part of the covenant meals. They were part of the story of celebration. And we love to invite children to come to communion. But we also recognize, and Laura and I did this with our kids, is that you might not want to bring them. And now let me just hold on a second. You might want to bring them, but you might not want to give them communion. Now, this is why. Our children we discovered, 
are very certain that communion is a pre-lunch snack. That's what they think it is. They're like, oh, it's 10 to 12, it must be lunchtime, grab it and run. And so we actually realized as a bunch of families uh, a number of years ago, we were like, well, why don't we actually not give them communion to start with? And why don't we just instead, we'll ask again a prayer of blessing on them to give us space and time as families to at least talk about why this matters and why it's not a pre-lunchtime snack. So you are welcome to do either, but we would encourage you and bless you as families to talk about it, to think about what communion is all about. But here's the invitation. The invitation is to come. Come to communion as we're about to take it together in a moment. To come to baptism if you've not been baptized. In a, as I said a minute ago, at lunch today in about half an hour's time, we're going to have a, a session upstairs over lunch to think about baptism. If you're interested, please just come. But we're going to take communion now and our kids are going to come back and join us. So let's pray. And maybe um, just wherever you are, just to take a moment of just quiet, just to receive and just prepare your hearts to come to communion.